Part One, Chapter Twelve of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Twelve, The Midnight Sun. Sergeant Long's assertion must appear to have been founded on insufficient evidence. That there had been dancing, no one could deny. But that the dancer was a Frenchman, however probable, could not be considered proved. However, the lieutenant shared the opinion of his subordinate, which did not appear too positive to any of the party, who all agreed in feeling sure that some travellers, with at least one compatriot of Vestris amongst them, had recently encamped on this spot. Of course, Lieutenant Hobson was by no means pleased at this. He was afraid of having been preceded by rivals in the northwestern districts of English America, and secret as the company had kept its scheme, it had doubtless been divulged in the commercial centres of Canada and the United States. The lieutenant resumed his interrupted march, but he was full of care and anxiety, although he would not now have dreamed of retracing his steps. Frenchmen are then sometimes met with in these high latitudes? was Mrs. Barnett's natural question after this incident. Yes, madam, replied the lieutenant, or if not exactly Frenchmen, the descendants of the masters of Canada when it belonged to France, which comes to much the same thing. These men are, in fact, our most formidable rivals. But I thought, resumed Mrs. Barnett, that after the absorption by the Hudson's Bay Company of the old Northwest Company, that it had no longer any rivals on the American continent. Although there is no longer any important association for trading in furs except our own, there are a good many perfectly independent private companies, mostly American, which have retained French agents or their descendants in their employ. Are these agents then held in such high esteem? asked Mrs. Barnett. Yes, madam, and with good reason. During the ninety-four years of French supremacy in Canada, French agents always proved themselves superior to ours. We must be just, even to our rivals. Especially to our rivals, added Mrs. Barnett. Yes, especially. At that time, French hunters, starting from Montreal, their headquarters, pressed on to the north with greater hardihood than any others. They lived for years with the Indian tribes, sometimes intermarrying with them. The natives called them the Canadian travellers, and were on the most intimate terms with them. They were bold, clever fellows, expert at navigating streams, light-hearted and merry, adapting themselves to circumstances with the easy flexibility of their race, and always ready to sing or dance. And do you suppose that hunting is the only object of the party whose traces we have just discovered? I don't think any other hypotheses at all likely, replied Hobson. They are sure to be seeking new hunting grounds, but as we cannot possibly stop them, we must make haste to begin our own operations and compete boldly with all rivals. Lieutenant Hobson was now prepared for the competition he could not prevent, and he urged on the march of his party as much as possible, hoping that his rivals might not follow him beyond the seventieth parallel. The expedition now descended towards the south for some twenty miles, in order the more easily to pass around Franklin Bay. The country was still covered with verdure, and the quadrupeds and birds already enumerated were as plentiful as ever. 
so that they could reasonably hope that the whole of the northwest coasts of the American continent were populated in the same manner. The ocean which bathed these shores stretched away as far as the eye could reach. Recent atlases give no land beyond the North American coastline, and it is only the icebergs which impede the free navigation of the open sea from Bering Strait to the Pole itself. On the 4th of July, the travellers skirted around another deep bay called Washburn Bay, and reached the furthest point of a little lake. Until then, imperfectly known, covering but a small extent of territory, scarcely two square miles, in fact it was rather a lagoon, or large pond of sweet water, than a lake. The sledges went on easily and rapidly, and the appearance of the country was most encouraging to the explorers. It seemed that the extremity of Cape Bathurst would be a most favourable site for the new fort, as with this lagoon behind them, and the sea open for four or five months in the warm season, and giving access to the great highway of the Bering Strait, before them, it would be easy for the exiles to lay in fresh provisions, and to export their commodities. On 5th June, about three o'clock in the afternoon, the party at last halted at the extremity of Cape Bathurst. It remained to ascertain the exact position of this cape, which the maps place above the 70th parallel. It was, however, impossible to rely upon the marine surveys of the coast, as they had never yet been made with exactitude. Jasper Hobson decided to wait and ascertain the latitude and longitude. "'What prevents us from settling here?' asked Corporal Joliffe. "'You will own, Lieutenant, that it is a very inviting spot.' "'It will be more inviting still if you get double pay here, my worthy corporal,' replied Hobson. "'No doubt,' said Joliffe, "'and the orders of the company must be obeyed.' "'Then wait patiently till to-morrow,' added Hobson, "'and if we find that Cape Bathurst is really beyond seventy degrees north latitude, "'we will pitch our tent here.' "'The site was indeed admirably suited for the foundation of a new settlement. "'The wooded heights surrounding the lagoon would supply plenty of pine, birch, and other woods for the construction of the fort, and for stocking it with fuel. The lieutenant and some of his companions went to the very edge of the cape, and found that towards the west the coastline formed a lengthened curve, beyond which icebergs of a considerable height shut out the view. The water of the lagoon, instead of being brackish as they expected from its close vicinity to the sea, was perfectly sweet. But had it not been so, drinkable water would not have failed the little colony, as a fresh and limpid stream ran a few yards to the southeast of Cape Bathurst, and emptied itself into the Arctic Ocean through a narrow inlet, which, protected by a singular accumulation of sand and earth, instead of by rocks, would have afforded a refuge to several vessels from the winds of the offing and might be turned to account for the anchorage of the ships which it was hoped would come to the new settlement from Bering Strait. Out of compliment to the lady of the party, and much to her delight, Lieutenant Hobson named the stream Paulina River, and the little harbour Port Barnett. By building the fort, a little behind the actual cape, the principal house and the magazines would be quite sheltered from the coldest winds. The elevation of the cape would help to protect them from the snowdrifts, which sometimes completely bury large buildings beneath their heavy avalanches in a few hours. There was plenty of room between the foot of the promontory and the bank of the lagoon 
for all the construction necessary to a fort. It could even be surrounded by palisades, which would break the shock of the icebergs. And the cape itself might be surrounded with a fortified redoubt, if the vicinity of rivals should render such a purely defensive erection necessary. And the lieutenant, although with no idea of commencing anything of the kind as yet, naturally rejoiced at having met with an easily defensible position. The weather remained fine, and it was quite warm enough. There was not a cloud upon the sky. But, of course, the clear blue air of temperate and torrid zones could not be expected here, and the atmosphere was generally charged with a light mist. What would Cape Bathurst be like in the long winter nights of four months when the ice mountains became fixed and rigid, and the hoarse north wind swept down upon the icebergs in all its fury? None of the party gave a thought to that time now. For the weather was beautiful, the verdant landscape smiled, and the waves sparkled in the sunbeams, whilst the temperature remained warm and pleasant. A provisional camp, the sledges forming its only material, was arranged for the night on the banks of the lagoon, and towards evening Mrs. Barnett, the lieutenant, Sergeant Long, and even Thomas Black explored the surrounding district in order to ascertain its resources. It appeared to be in every respect suitable and hobson was eager for the next day that he might determine the exact situations and find out if it fulfilled the conditions imposed by the company well lieutenant said the astronomer when the examination was over this is really a charming spot such as i should not have imagined could have existed beyond the arctic circle ah mr black cried hobson the finest countries in the world are to be found here and i am impatient to ascertain our latitude and longitude especially the latitude said the astronomer whose eclipse was never out of his thoughts and i expect your brave companions are as eager as yourself double pay beyond the seventieth parallel but mr black said mrs barnett do you not yourself take an interest a purely scientific interest in getting beyond that parallel of course madam of course i am anxious to get beyond it but not so terribly eager According to our calculations, however, made with absolute accuracy, the solar eclipse, which I am ordered to watch, will only be total to an observer placed beyond the seventieth degree. And on this account I share the lieutenant's impatience to determine the position of Cape Bathurst. But I understand, Mr. Black, said Mrs. Barnett, that this solar eclipse will not take place until the 18th July, 1860. Yes, madam, on the 18th July, 1860 and it is now only the 15th June, 1859, so that the phenomenon will not be visible for more than a year. I am quite aware of it, Mrs. Barnett, replied the astronomer, but if I had not started till next year, I should have run a risk of being too late. You would, Mr. Black, said Hobson, and you did well to start a year beforehand. You are now quite sure not to miss your eclipse. I own that our journey from Fort Reliance has been accomplished under exceptionally favorable circumstances. We have had little fatigue and few delays. To tell you the truth, I did not expect to get to this part of the coast until middle of August, and if the eclipse had been expected this year instead of next, you really might have been too late. Moreover, we do not yet know if we are beyond the 70th parallel. I do not in the least regret the journey I have taken in your company, Lieutenant, and I shall patiently wait until next year for my eclipse. The fair Phoebe, I fancy, is a sufficiently grand lady to be waited for. 
The next day, July 6th, a little afternoon, Hobson and the astronomer made their preparations for taking the exact bearings of Cape Bathurst. The sun shone clearly enough for them to take the outlines exactly. At this season of the year, too, it had reached its maximum height above the horizon, and consequently its culmination on its transit across the meridian would facilitate the work of the two observers. Already the night before, and the same morning, by taking different altitudes, and by means of a calculation of right ascensions, the lieutenant and the astronomer had ascertained the longitude with great accuracy. But it was about the latitude that Hobson was most anxious, for what would the meridian of Cape Bathurst matter to him, should it not be situated beyond the seventieth parallel? Noon approached. The men of the expedition gathered round the observers, with their sextants ready in their hands. The brave fellows awaited the result of the observation, with an impatience which will be readily understood. It was now to be decided whether they had come to the end of the journey, or whether they must search still further for a spot, fulfilling the conditions imposed by the company. Probably no good result would have followed upon further explorations. According to the maps of North America, imperfect it is true, the western coast beyond Cape Bathurst slopes down below the seventieth parallel, not again rising above it until it entered Russian America, where the English had yet no right to settle, so that Hobson had shown considerable judgment in directing his course to Cape Bathurst after a thorough examination of the maps of these northern regions. This promontory is, in fact, the only one which juts out beyond the seventieth parallel along the whole of the North American continent, properly so called, that is to say, in English America. It remained to be proved that it really occupied the position assigned to it in maps. At this moment the sun was approaching the culmination point of its course, and the two observers pointed the telescopes of their sextants upon it. By means of inclined mirrors attached to the instruments, the sun ought apparently to go back to the horizon itself, and the moment when it seemed to touch it with the lower side of its disk would be precisely that at which it would occupy the highest point of the diurnal arc, and consequently the exact moment when it would pass the meridian, in other words, it would be noon at the place where the observation was taken. All watched in anxious silence. Noon! cried Jasper Hobson, and the astronomer at once. The telescopes were immediately lowered. The lieutenant and Thomas Black read on the graduated limbs the value of the angles they had just obtained, and at once proceeded to note down their observations. A few minutes afterwards, Lieutenant Hobson rose and said, addressing his companions, My friends, from this date, July 6, I promise you double pay in the name of the Hudson's Bay Company. "'Hurrah! Hurrah! Hurrah for the company!' shouted the worthy companions of the lieutenant with one voice. Cape Bathurst and its immediate neighbourhood were in very truth above the seventieth degree of north latitude. We give the result of these simultaneous observations, which agreed to a second. Longitude, 127 degrees, 36 minutes, 12 seconds, west of the meridian of Greenwich. Latitude, seventy degrees forty four minutes thirty seven seconds north and that very evening these hardy pioneers encamped so far from the inhabited world 
watched the mighty luminary of day touch the edges of the western horizon without dipping beneath it. For the first time they saw the shining of the midnight sun. End of chapter 12